The flipped classroom has received a lot of attention in recent years. Today, Dr. Derek Breff gives his unique take on the idea. What to have the students do before they enter the classroom and what to do once they get there. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Welcome to episode 71 of Teaching in Higher Ed. Today, I'm pleased to have on the show Dr. Derek Breff. Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I first, quote unquote, met you or became aware of who you are from your Twitter profile. I'm just going to read what it says. You are the director of the Center for Teaching at Vanderbilt University. And your profile also says you're a fan of Wheels on Chairs. Derek, do you mind sharing what the background is on why you're such a fan of Wheels on Chairs? Uh, absolutely. So um, I'm a, 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 a big proponent of active learning in the classroom in the various forms. Um, and I find that often when I walk into a classroom or when other instructors walk into a classroom, um, there's, a, there's a desire to kind of shape the environment to suit the learning needs of that class session. And so I'm often finding myself wanting to move chairs around and tables around. Um, maybe we'll do groups of four, maybe we'll do groups of six, maybe we'll have a debate. And so um, I love it when classrooms are flexible enough to accommodate uh, kind of whatever needs to happen in class that day. And so uh, that's why I like wheels on chairs, because once you have wheels on chairs, then you and your students can usually pretty easily reconfigure the classroom to, to suit whatever activity you're doing that day. I've seen some of the pictures that you have of some of the classrooms you've actually had a chance to be a part of designing, and I covet those wheels on chairs, and I think that that's fabulous. You have a PhD in mathematics from Vanderbilt, and you have an article you recently published about your journey from math major to teaching center director. Would you share a little bit about that journey with us? I guess if I really want to kind of unravel my secret origin. It was probably third grade when I realized that math was something I really liked. I remember the moment we learned how to add fractions with different denominators. And I thought that was just the coolest little algorithm. I didn't know the word algorithm because I was in third grade, but I thought it was really cool. Um, and I've actually talked to other folks who can point to that, that same topic as when they started to get really frustrated with mathematics. Um, but I was a math guy from way back. Uh, and then when I got to college, I started tutoring math. And that's when I got bit by the teaching bug. So I was working with my fellow students, right, who were generally struggling in calculus, and I would meet with them and kind of help them work through problems. And I really appreciated how that kind of light bulb moment um, that would come on, not all the time, but often enough that I felt like I was, I was being useful and could kind of help explain things that were confusing to them. And so when I graduated college, I was, I, I, the plan was to become a college math professor. And so I went to, um, ended up at Vanderbilt University, where I am now, but I, I did my, my graduate work here as well. Um, and one of the reasons I picked Vanderbilt was um, they had a reputation for producing very, uh, 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 very strong teachers of mathematics. Um, and so, uh, and I got the chance as a graduate student uh, to be the instructor of record for calculus for six semesters in a row. Um, so I wasn't just a kind of TA or a paper grader, but I actually got to be in the classroom and 
you know, other than the kind of the, the topic, it was first semester calculus in the textbook, I, I had uh, a lot of autonomy um, to, to teach and to develop my teaching skills. Um, and so it was uh, later in my grad student career, actually, I started working at the Center for Teaching here at Vanderbilt, where I'm now the director. Uh, and that's when I got a taste of working with other TAs, um, other grad students who were teaching in other disciplines even, and helping them, you generally working one-on-one -on -one with them to kind of think through teaching choices they were making. Uh, and I got this sense of kind of what I do now, which uh, someone would call educational development, where I'm, I'm working with, with colleagues and helping them develop and refine their teaching uh, practices. So when I went on the job market, after I finished my PhD, I happened to land a spot at Harvard in the math department. And it was kind of an unusual position. It was called preceptor. It was a non-tenure track faculty position in the math department. At Harvard, calculus was taught in small sections, like it was at Vanderbilt. And so we had a lot of grad students and postdocs who were teaching calculus. And so my role, um, there were a team of us, but we were the course ahead for different flavors of calculus. Not only did I teach, but I also trained and supervised and mentored more junior teachers in the calculus program. That, again, kind of gave me this sense of kind of working with others, helping them develop their teaching skills, teaching about teaching, which I found to be really, really exciting. And so after a couple of years, I moved back to Vanderbilt, got a position as an assistant director here at the Center for Teaching. That was a pretty big shift, right, uh, from a, a faculty role to a staff role, yeah. um, from a position within a math department to a university-wide teaching center. I liked exploring what teaching and learning looked like in other disciplines. As much as I love mathematics and teaching mathematics, I also really like engaging with faculty from lots of different disciplines and helping them think through what teaching and learning might be in their class. And the other is that I feel like now at the Center for Teaching, I have I have less of a direct impact on student learning. I still teach one course a year in the math department, so I'm kind of in the classroom and, and get to work with students that way. But through my work at the Center for Teaching, I'm working with you know, hundreds of faculty around campus and I think helping them enhance the learning experience of their students. It's an indirect impact, but it's a, really, it's a bigger impact in many ways. Um, and I find that I'm, I'm really drawn to that as well. I wanted to ask a quick question about your experience with the TA, because that's so early back in, in your teaching experience. My university recently really, really increased the service levels of their tutoring center, and it's, I'm just so excited about what they're doing. And I'm, so I'm hearing more about students who are accessing the tutors, but one of the weaknesses is that the, according to students who are being tutored, that they feel like that tutor is just, again, telling them more about what they're supposed to know versus asking them to explain it back to them. And I was wondering, did you notice that back then, that that gosh, it doesn't really work when I'm trying to tutor if I just tell them again the same way that their professor might have in the class? Or did it take a little while longer to kind of figure out the telling versus asking uh, more active learning? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think in my case, certainly my, I mean, I started tutoring my freshman year of college. And I was tutoring other freshmen who were, I had calculus in high school, so I was a little bit ahead of them in terms of the math trajectory. Um, and this Students who signed up for tutoring largely did so because they weren't understanding the explanations they encountered in the classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, and so almost all the time, I would have to come up with different ways to explain things to students so that it, it made some sense. Um, and I think I, I, I probably just kind of stumbled upon the strategy of asking them lots of questions, right? Show me how you're working through the problem, mm -hmm. right? And I could kind of see where they got stuck. And I could ask them, well, well what if you did this or what if you did that? Um, and so uh, through asking questions, I would often kind of help them get to some level of understanding. I mean, I still have to offer a lot of explanations 
but I think it was often grounded in whatever kind of misconceptions or, or, or questions that they had. I remember there was uh, uh, one fellow student who, um, we, we worked together pretty regularly throughout my entire freshman year, um, and it got to the point where she, uh, you know, I'd, I'd kind of sit there, she'd work some problems, I'd kind of ask some questions every now and then to kind of see if she was on the right track, and she said, Derek, could you maybe just come to my, my test and sit next to me? You don't have to say anything. Just every now and then just say, hmm, or are you sure about that? Oh, I love it. And it, was, it got to the point where that was all the prompting she needed, right, to kind of go back and double check and kind of think things through. So I don't know. I think that was my, my, my takeaway was that, uh, that, that asking questions as a tutor is kind of your most, your, your, your most valuable tool. And when I worked at Harvard, I directed our, our tutored study hall there as well for a year and when we trained, in that case, it was staffed by undergraduates. And when we trained them to be effective tutors, this was kind of a key piece, actually. Is we, had to, we had to help them understand they can't just give students the answers. That's not helpful. They have to ask the kinds of questions that will lead the students to the answers themselves. We're going to transition now into the flipped classroom, although we haven't had an episode yet on the flipped classroom. I'm sure we'll even have more in the future, but you have a different take on it. Before we hear about your different take, would you just define for people listening what a flipped classroom usually means? I know there's lots of definitions, but just the general. Yeah, there are lots of definitions. And so I tend to connect it back to, I guess I first heard uh, Eric Mazur, the Harvard physics professor, talk about this years ago. And he talked about learning it as, as this two-stage process. So there's the kind of transfer of information from instructor to students. And then there's the assimilation of that information by the students. And then the traditional model, and you can kind of think of a classic introductory to physics course, right? That the transfer stage happens during class through lecture. And then after class, the students go and work homework, right? They do homework sets, they do problem sets, and they try to make sense of all the stuff they heard in lecture. On some level, the flipped classroom is kind of a, a shift in time of that process. So that you take that transfer step, and that happens before students get to class. And class time is then spent on the assimilation step. And as Eric Mazur likes to say, it's, that step's the harder of the two anyway, right? And so why not do that when everyone's together, right? The students are together, you're there, and you can help work through it. And so I think kind of a classic flipped approach is to have students kind of have some kind of first encounter with the material before they come to class. It could be reading their textbooks. It could be a video that you find. It could be a video that you create. But they come to class having had some first exposure to the material. When they're in class, that's a time for that assimilation, right? And it, assimilation seems a little bit too, I don't know, Borg-like. Um, <laughs> I tend to think of it in terms of practice and feedback. Mm -hmm. and students need practice working through ideas, techniques, and they need feedback on that process. And so moving that to the class time, you can kind of think of what used to be a homework set what might be moved into the, the class time um, to be worked on together or maybe collaboratively during class. And so that's kind of what I think of as that flipped approach, is that you've got a first exposure that happens before class, and then practice and feedback during class. And then often there's more, more after it, right? Some kind of further exploration or more work after class. But it's that, that idea of kind of flipping what usually happens outside of class to what happens in class and vice versa. I think that's, that's where we get the metaphor, certainly. I know one of the tools that you've recommended in your blog and in other articles is from the Center for Teaching at Vanderbilt by Cynthia, is it Bram, B-R-A-M-E? Bram. She has a set, a set, an article on flipping the classroom, and so I'm just going to let people know that I will post a link to that article. And all of Derek's recommendations and links and, and things like that will be posted at teachinginhighered.com slash 71. 
now we kind of have an idea of what a flipped classroom normally looks like. What are some of your criticisms of what a what a typical flipped classroom model might look like? What are the limitations? First, I think I'll point out that there's kind of this flipping metaphor going on, right? Which is in some ways a relative thing, right? Like you're flipping from one thing to another. I think for our colleagues in the humanities, they may hear this idea of having students do the reading before class and then coming to class to like talk about it. Like that's that's not a new thing for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a flip. <laughs> I like to joke that if, if you think about an English literature course, if you were to flip that, you would have students read silently <laughs> the text together during class, and then they would talk about it online after class or something. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't know that you would do that. <laughs> and so I do think the flip is a bit relative. In the sciences and math and a lot of the social sciences, there is a real strong tradition of lecturing during class, having that first exposure happen during class. And so in those areas, the classroom really does kind of present a different way of doing things. I joke about the flipping the English class, but I actually have a colleague here, Helen Shin, in our English department, who recently published an article called Flipping the Flipped Classroom, where she actually wanted to engage her students in some collective reading during class. And she wanted to kind of highlight the reading process itself. And so she, she did exactly what I joked about, which was have students read together in class, which I think is, is kind of funny. Mm. Um, so I think the thing about the flip, so there's, I guess, a couple of things with the flip classroom. One is um, that there's, I think, a common I, a belief that the flip classroom means you have students watch a video before class, um, that you're kind of substituting that lecture as the, as the thing the students do before class. So you either find videos or create videos, spring tasks, right? Um, and I would like to think, I mean, that can be very helpful and useful, certainly. It can sometimes be a lot of work, too. Yeah. Um, but I think the bigger point is that um, the thing I like about the flipped classroom is that it, there's this kind of question, and I think Mazura raised it, right? Like, why don't we do the hard stuff together, right? And so, one, I would say, it doesn't have to be a video before class. Um, uh, you know, having students read their textbook um, is, is often a very useful kind of first exposure. Um, all of that kind of points to the learning process, right? What are the kind of experiences and activities we want to have our students engage in that will help them make sense of this material and do something interesting with it? Um, and so that's why I like the flipped classroom as a model, because I think it points us to this kind of question about the learning sequence and how we can make the best use of our time. I hear a lot of the comments you're talking about, the flipping the videos the difficulty in that sometimes, but also the helpful parts of doing the hard stuff together. I wonder if you're also hearing just trying to get students to do something before class that it feels like maybe we used to do more of, where you actually read the textbook before you come to class, that kind of thing. Are you also hearing that in the model? Yeah, and I think so. And this is where I think things get a little bit interesting for the humanities folks, because I've long heard humanities faculty say, gosh, I, you know, I wish students would do the reading. They don't do the reading. Uh, and so while, yes, it is kind of part of their model that students do the reading before class and come to class and discuss it, if students aren't actually doing the pre-class prep, then it, it kind of derails what you do during class. And that's where I think some of the folks maybe in the sciences who have been implementing the flipped classroom have hit upon some mechanisms that might help actually kind of ensure that students come to class ready to learn and are, and, and are prepared. There's also this kind of pushback that the flipped classroom is kind of doubling the workload for students. Right, that they have to do all this stuff before class, and then they have to do all this stuff during class. And I, and I don't think that's, that's the right way to go about it either. And that's why I really like this term, first exposure. 
Hmm. Um, uh, That's from uh, uh, Barbara Walford's uh, book on effective grading. Um, And she talks about this kind of first exposure idea. And so I think it's helpful to think, what's the kind of first step in the learning sequence for this topic? Um, and, and, should, and could students engage in that outside of class? Uh, and so that may be a, like a 10-minute video that they would watch, right, to kind of have an example or kind of introduce a key principle. Or maybe it's a short reading that they engage in before class, um, something that's going to get them ready uh, for what happens in class. And not necessarily kind of, not necessarily what you would have done in class shifted in time, right? But I think there's a uh, there's value in kind of rethinking what the process is and what's the right kind of first thing, first step in that process. And then on some level, when should that happen, right? Uh, it may be that the student's first encounter with kind of new material should not happen on their own before class, mm-hmm. right? Maybe that needs to be a collaborative group activity during class. So thinking about it instead of, is this coming before the classroom just automatically in my head because I flipped the classroom, this first exposure has to happen then. But thinking first about what that exposure should be and then determining the best mechanism for exposing the students to it? Yeah, so there's this term from the literature that I found really helpful to think about kind of at lots of different scales. Um, It's from an article by Schwartz and Bransford called time, uh, time for Telling. And so the, um, this is the kind of metaphor I usually use. So several years ago, my daughter was in preschool, and they had uh, Science Day at preschool. And so all the parents were asked to, to come and do something sciencey uh, for the students. Um, and so I was, I have to say, I was, I was a cool dad who did that Diet Coke and Mentos thing, <laughs> you know, where you take Mentos and roll it into Diet Coke, and you get this geyser of Diet Coke. Uh, and so all the little five-year-olds thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Um, and uh, the thing that I noticed, even with the five-year-olds, was after I did the, the little demonstration, they wanted to know why it worked. Now, I couldn't get too much into the physics and chemistry of it with five-year-olds, but I could say stuff, you know, there's bubbles trapped in the, in the soda, and when you put the minnows in there, all the bubbles kind of come together all at once and then have to escape, right? I could, I could give an explanation, but it's the kind of the why question that I think was really interesting, because if you take this and kind of take it to a, you know, college-level chemistry or physics class, you could lecture for 15 minutes on how the Mentos and Diet Coke thing works and then show them the demonstration. Or you could start with a demonstration, ask them to conjecture why it works, have them talk about it a little bit, right? Maybe vote on a quicker question or something to try to hypothesize and then get to the explanation. And I think what you'll find if you do it the latter way is that there's kind of cognitive and motivational benefits that cognitively the students have kind of accessed what they, what, whatever prior knowledge they have, right? They've, they've conjectured a little bit, and so they're going to be ready to make sense of that explanation when it comes. And motivationally, they're going to be curious, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to want to know why it works. Um, and maybe you do a quicker question, and half of them get it wrong, right? And now they really want to know, well, why did we get this wrong? What's the right answer? Um, and so I love this idea of creating times for telling. And that, I think, really does kind of question this kind of simple model of the flipped classroom where students encounter the material through some kind of explanatory process, right? A textbook chapter, uh, a lecture video. But that's the first thing that they, they encounter is an explanation. And then they come to class and do something with it. I think sometimes students first need to encounter a problem or a challenge or something a little bit mysterious, mm. right? Something that they can't quite understand, get a little stuck, 
and then that motivates the 15-minute lecture where you're explaining something that at that point they kind of want to know about. I wrote a chapter once about instead of trying to fight against things that bother us that students do, they don't read before they come to class or they're on their cell phones and texting while we're trying to teach them something, instead of fighting against that to use the Aikido method, the, the martial art yeah. where you use that force and then turn it back around against them. So if they're going to be on their yeah. cell phones anyway, why not pick up the cell phone and get them engaged in some way with a polling system or something like that? And in terms of the reading, you're really doing that. Instead of me, oh, they don't read the textbook. They're trying to heighten that curiosity and that hunger for wanting that explanation. And then perhaps if the textbook is the place that we think to go as one of the means for solving that mystery that you've just introduced them to. I love that. I love that idea. Times for telling. One of the courses I teach here from time to time is a linear algebra course. And so I like to, uh, and like I said, this time for telling can kind of operate kind of within a class session or within a unit or within even a course. And I use it kind of at the course level, um, among other places. So in the first day of class in my linear algebra course, we don't start, the kind of usual uh, process is to start kind of, here's a matrix and here's how you multiply two matrices and here's how you, you know, here's a system of linear equations and here's how you do these computations associated with that. Um, and that's all important stuff, but I think it's, it's, it's a kind of a, it's a frustrating way to start the course because it's not that interesting and it's very kind of computational in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't help students understand, like, why would I take linear algebra? What could I do with this? And, and what are the concepts, right? Because the other thing about linear algebra is that actually the concepts gets really hard. Um, and I don't like to kind of wait till week four to, to, to kind of surface some of that. So what I like to do in the first day of class is we look at the board game Monopoly. And uh, I kind of pose a challenge, like, what are the best places to buy on the board game Monopoly? And they kind of have to think about it a little bit. I pass out, like, you know, a, a photocopy of the, of the game board, so they're all looking at it and kind of figuring out, well, you roll two dice, and you start to go, and you move around the board, right? And you buy places, and you land places, and when people land on your place, you get to, you know, charge them rent, right? And so eventually they kind of come up with, well, you want to buy properties where you get to charge a lot of money, right, a lot of rent. But you also want to buy properties that get landed on a lot, right? What are the properties that get landed on the most? Um, and that's kind of an interesting question. And then we start to model that, right? And so I say, okay, Monopoly is a little complicated. Let's imagine it just had four spaces, right? And now we're just kind of moving around these spaces. And what we do is we, we kind of go through this modeling process, starting very, very simple. We strip out most of the rules of Monopoly. And then we add in a few rules to get it a little more complex, and we kind of get to the point where we realize we've got a nice model and we can kind of see over time um, where, which, which properties get landed on more often. You can kind of think of this, you know, you're the little, you're the carrier or the shoe, whatever, and you're just kind of going around the board an infinite number of times, right? You're just going and going and going. Which are the ones that you land on more often? And the beauty is that you solve that problem with matrix algebra. Um, you can model it with matrices. Um, and then you can kind of predict what the long-term behavior is using this thing called a Markov chain. And there are some nice theorems around this that allow you to do this kind of mathematical prediction. And so by starting this way, I think it helps them, one, they're, they're not, by the end of the first hour, they don't really know how to do Markov chains. They barely understand what a matrix is, but that's not the point, right? I, I want them to start to see kind of where we're going with all this. And I want them to see a question that I hope is a little bit interesting to them, it seems a little bit relevant, maybe, um, that they don't know how to answer yet. And they don't at this point. 
Um, and it will, it'll be several weeks before we develop the mathematical machinery to actually help them answer that question. Um, we talk about a few other applications that are similar, right? You can model populations moving around places with the same kind of technique. And so by the time we get to Markov chains, you know, four or five weeks later, um, now we can answer that question. And now I think we've created that kind of time for telling where now they want to know what they can do with Markov chains and they, mm -hmm. and they get good at using it. What a great example. That's kind of a, a course time for telling, right? But even at a smaller scale, I wouldn't necessarily want them to kind of go through that on their own before they came to class. In that case, we kind of want to do it together, right? I want them to get stuck together. I want them to have each other to talk to as they're getting stuck um, so that they can start to do that kind of conjecturing um, that will lead to the time for telling down the way. And so I do think, and there's some research, there's an article by a team of education researchers at Stanford who looked at uh, a neuroscience class, and they kind of compared students who did hands-on activities first and then explanatory videos versus students who did explanatory videos first and then hands-on activities. And the students who started with the kind of concrete experimental hands-on activities actually did better at the kind of assessments that they, that they gave them a little bit later. And so I don't think it's universally true that you want to start with a kind of experiential piece. Um, but I think sometimes you do, and I think you need to think carefully about the topic and the students, and again, that question of what's the sequence that's going to help students really start to kind of get into this material and start to make sense of it. And so sometimes that's an explanation to start with, sometimes that's a problem. Uh, maybe sometimes you want to start that process during class, and sometimes you want to start that process before class. I can see, though, that you're and, and sorry, I'm going to repeat what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm, I'm starting to get it. You're teaching me as we go that that it, that when we just adopt the flipped classroom and it just becomes, I picture this line down the center of a page or or down the center of a spreadsheet, and on the left are all the things I do, the students do before they come to class, and on the right, and I and I'm sure I've gotten into that pattern myself in my course design of just thinking of it as dates that are plugged into. A calendar and for me I'm we're always meeting in person on Mondays and Wednesdays and then they have to have done the the outside of class before we would have met on that Friday so they don't spend their weekend or stay up you know till all hours trying to get it done the night before it's due I try to fight some of that but I'm sure I've gotten too locked into that and instead the focus is on first exposure and what's the best place and time to do that and and starting with that you're you're emphasizing so much of getting them to start to ask why and, and lighting up the curiosity in their minds. I want to be realistic about this too, right? I mean, some of this, you know, I'm a busy guy, right? I've got to teach my class. I don't want to necessarily kind of reinvent the wheel every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So I, I kind of have my defaults, right? But I think even when you've got defaults, you want to have good defaults, right? And so I think for a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, the flipped model does offer a good kind of default. Um, but then also, when you have the bandwidth, right, to kind of think concretely, okay, for this topic, right, for this reading, what's the sequence that's going to work? Like here at Vanderbilt, I'll teach, either, whether it's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class or a Tuesday, Thursday class, I, I have 150 minutes a week in the same room as my students, right? Either 3 by 50 or 2 by 75. Mm -hmm. So I do want to think really carefully. That's a, that's a pretty precious commodity, right? And so to think really intentionally about what I can do in that limited time to help them kind of engage with the material the most. In the example that you used of the Monopoly board game, tell me about then what it looks like when they do have those skills the few weeks later. Does Monopoly come back and are they asked to then actually use those skills and applying it back to the 
question about the board game and which places are best to buy? Yes. So I, I will say on the first day of class, I do give them an answer to the question mm. in this case because it's the first day, right? Um, and I don't want them to think like math is totally mysterious. There's still a kind of little black box piece in the middle where they don't know kind of how I got from point A to point B. Um, and that's what we develop over time. Um, so they get a little bit of an answer originally. Um, but then when we come back to that topic later in the semester, yeah, we look at other board games, right? We look at other kind of applications of this. You know, we do some population modeling. Um, and in fact, at the end of the semester, um, uh, they do application projects where um, I ask them to work in usually teams of two and to, to pick some application of some of the linear algebra techniques that, that we've, we've looked at during the semester. And at that point, they've got a few kind of big options, but, but this Markov chain mo uh, modeling is, is one of them. And so usually I have a, a few students who then try to apply that to some other situation, right? It's, uh, baseball is really hard to model this way, but I've had students try to do that. Um, but, you know, I had students who did a full model of Candyland, right, and, uh, <laughs> and kind of, you know, in stakes there. So uh, that's what I like to do is um, to kind of bring them back to that eventually. Um, and, you know, on some level, the, the kind of textbooky questions, they generally get pretty good at, right? I mean, they can, they can solve that. Um, but I want to have them to have that op opportunity to kind of go beyond the textbook questions. Um, and I found these application projects um, as a really useful tool for that because they're, they're kind of bigger than a class session, right? Um, and students have to do a little bit of uh, original work um, and often connect it to something that they're interested in. Um, I can't say that my students were like huge Candyland fans, but in other cases, students have found ways to connect the linear algebra, which is pretty abstract stuff, to uh, problems and uh, scenarios that, that they actually kind of find personally interesting. I'm so curious to know if the Candyland you're referring to is the Candyland of today that my small children are, are playing with, or if it's the Candyland of my childhood, which I think is far superior. <laughs> it seems to have had a dramatic <laughs> shift. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> And that, you know what, uh, was it, can it might have been Candyland, it might have been Shoots and Ladders. I am a little bit fuzzy on this, but it was definitely one of those two. Either one it's would have been project. great, but yeah. I hope the original Candyland is my hope. I can't help but wish. <laughs> is there anything else you want to share about that time in the classroom before we go on to the recommendation segment? So uh, kind of a general comment about the flipped classroom and then maybe kind of a, something about kind of what to do with that time in the classroom. I think one of the reasons that the flipped classroom as an idea has really generated a lot of conversation in higher education is that for a lot of faculty it directly confronts really their mental model of what they do in the classroom. Mm. Right? I walk in, I'm a professor, I profess. Right? I, I, I uh, give students this first exposure, I explain things to students, I lecture during class. Right? This is our mental model for many of us of what we do in the classroom. And so the idea that you would take that and, and move that outside of the classroom and then do something completely different during class. I think for some faculty, that's exciting, right? Like, oh, I don't have to lecture anymore. We can do active learning. We can do small groups. We can do problem-based learning. We can do all this fun stuff in class. I think for some faculty, it's really worrisome, right? If I'm not lecturing during class, what am I going to do, right? How am I going to make good use of that time? And, and do I have the skills it takes to kind of navigate that? Um, and, and so in contrast to, I don't know, say service learning or, um, team-based learning or some kind of other pedagogical models out there, I think it's a little bit easier for faculty to say, you know what, I, that's not really for me, that's for some other discipline. I think for a lot of folks, the flipped classroom does kind of confront like how they do what they do. And so they almost have to have an answer to it. And so for the, the folks who are worried about what to do during class, I do think that there are some simple structures that you can implement. 
um, again, some kind of defaults that you can kind of go to. Um, my favorite is clickers and peer instruction. So giving students a multiple choice question, usually conceptual in nature, um, having them all work on it individually and then vote using some technology. I can see the distribution of votes, and often I've asked a question that's kind of hard enough that a lot of them don't get it right. So then I have them pair up and talk it out, right? Put your heads together, try to come up with the right answer. Mm -hmm. um, and so they discuss it in small groups, and then they re-vote. And often I see some movement towards the right answer. I teach math, right? All of my questions have right answers. So that's <laughs> not true in other disciplines, but you can yeah. use the same model, I think, um, for questions that have more ambiguity. But then you've got this nice bar graph, and you can see, oh, you know what? A third of you think the answer is B, and two-thirds of you think the answer is C. Now we have a class discussion, right? Why do you think it's B? Why do you think it's C? How did you rule out A, right? These are the types of things you can do during that. Um, and then get to that time for telling, right? So at some point, right, you know, either the students are going to kind of articulate all the right reasoning um, for the right answer, or if they're still kind of struggling with that, you might kind of, kind of give them a little bit of explanation there at the end or give your take on it at the end of the sequence. But it's a nice kind of structured sequence, right? It's a lot like this think-pair-share idea, right? Have students think, have them pair up and talk it out, and then you have the kind of class discussion where you try to surface that student reasoning. Um, and kind of direct that conversation towards kind of more robust reasoning. And that's a structure you can kind of do every day, right? And you can apply it in kind of small ways and big ways. Um, but that's, uh, I guess that's how I'd answer the question of what am I going to do with my class time, is to kind of start with that peer instruction, that think-pair-share sequence, um, and see what you can do to kind of build off of that. And if anyone listening is, this is early in your listening to the show, we did have an episode from T Peter Newbury from University of San Diego, University of California, San Diego. Sorry, those are two different schools for my non-California <laughs> friends. And I'll put a link in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 71 to his episode, which really aligns nicely with what Derek just shared. But if you want to learn more about clickers and peer instruction, that'd be a fun episode to follow up with after this one. Well, this is the time in the show in which we do recommendations. My recommendation is really twofold. It is having to do with the challenge of teaching large sections and teaching multiple sections of the same class. I recently have had my students get into their major project groups for the class that I'm teaching three sections of this semester. And it's always been a challenge in the past to remember who has sent me in their team charters and who has yet to send them. So a couple of steps that I took, one was inside of my task manager, which is in my case, OmniFocus, I have for each one of the groups waiting for team charter, and then the students are in that group. So I can check them off as, it, as they come in, and it's an easy way to spot check who hasn't sent theirs in yet. Well, the groups were all formed this week, as you might remember from past episodes, we only have 50 minutes in each class session, and I needed to make sure we discuss the topic for that day and also get them into their groups. So I quickly took a picture of each one of the groups, and that way I didn't have to wait until they sent in their team charter or follow up later and say, who was in your group again? I've automatically got a picture. I know who's in which group, and I can enter that into the task manager as well. What is your recommendation for people today? Well, mine is a little less practical. Right now, this semester, I'm teaching a, a course on cryptography, codes and ciphers. Um, and one of the, um, a couple of the individuals that we, we talk about in that course are, are Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace, who did some really kind of important work in uh, cryptography, but also computer science. Babbage is kind of designed the first computer, but wasn't able to build it because he didn't have the resources. 
Uh, and then Ada Lovelace actually wrote the first computer program. Um, couldn't run it because there wasn't a computer, right, because Babbage didn't build it, but she still gets credit as being essentially the first computer scientist. Um, and uh, that uh, has led, uh, we're recording this actually on October 13th, which is uh, Ada Lovelace Day. Um, it's a kind of worldwide celebration of women in, in the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Um, and I have to say, one of the kind of key players in Ada Lovelace Day, who I, I think is just fascinating, is this, um, she's an animator, right? She works on movies, um, Sydney Padua. Uh, and uh, she has this really fun graphic novel called The Adventures of Babbage and Lovelace. And it essentially imagines Babbage and Lovelace as these kind of crusading steampunk adventurers um, kind of solving problems with math and computer science and, um, you know, large machines um, that are steam-powered. Uh, and it's really funny. Um, I was uh, reading a bit more of it last night. Um, lots, of, lots of footnotes, actually, and really funny footnotes. It's very well referenced. Um, she loves finding primary sources about Agatha Lovelace and Babbage and their contemporaries and working them into these somewhat silly adventures. Um, so that's my recommendation, The Adventures of Babbage and Lovelace. It's a, it's a fantastic uh, and somewhat silly graphic novel. Is it historical fiction? Is that where we might group it? <laughs> uh, I guess, yeah. The thing is that Ada Lovelace actually died fairly young. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and, and Sydney Padua has written that, that she kind of feels like that's like a real shame. Like, like she, and, she and Babbage should have gone on these adventures. And so it kind of imagines, she calls it a pocket universe, kind of this parallel world where um, it's all kind of based on stuff that actually happened, and if you read the footnotes, you can get, again, a lot of those original sources, but she has a lot of fun with it and does some, does some very silly things. It looks like such a wonderful book. I've got it open right now, and I'm going to be adding it to my to-be-read list. <laughs> Thank you so much for the recommendation, and it's been so fun following you on Twitter. I'm going to put the ability for people to connect with you on Twitter in the show notes, and hope people will will do that and continue to learn from you. Thank you so much for investing your time in the teaching in higher ed community. Well, thank you so much for having me on today. I'm so grateful to Derek Breff for being on today's show and sharing all of his wisdom with me, as I mentioned throughout the episode. If you would like to get the show notes to this episode with the links of our recommendations and other articles that Derek mentioned, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash 71. And this is the time in the show when I remind you, if you have yet to rate or review the podcast. It's such a great way to get others exposed to the show because it moves it up in the iTunes ratings. That's how those algorithms work. So if you would go to teachinginhighered.com slash iTunes, you can rate the show and give it a review and help others discover the show. If you have feedback or suggestions on future topics or guests, please do that at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Last but not least, if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly update, that's where you'll get the show notes automatically in your inbox, along with an article on teaching or productivity. You can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And I'm looking forward to talking with all of you next time on the next episode. 